Welcome to Lost in Revision. All of our content is public domain, literature, fairy tales, and folklore. Our goal is to at least break even to cover our expenses. So any support that you can offer to help us reach that goal helps keep this podcast going and you entertained. All of our music is by Nathan Hubble and is used with his permission. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am Natalie, and I'm here with two of my favorite humans, Angel and Polly. We are coming at you from three separate locations, Texas, Tennessee, and Puerto Rico. So, are y'all ready to get started? Sounds great. Just nobody pick on me about my stuffy nose. (laughs) Well, we're just happy that you could make it to be with us today after fighting off COVID, the enemy. (laughs) Polly, you ready? I'm ready to go. I'm cold, but I'm ready. You never mind the cold anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, today we'll be talking about the fisherman and his wife. Let's dig into the history and culture for this story. Okay. When the Grimms first recorded it in 1809, they heard the story from Hamburg, and it was told in an East Pomeranian dialect. Since historically the Pomeranians were a West Slavic tribe who had settled along the shore of the Baltic Sea... It kind of stands to reason that they would have stories of fishermen in the sea. Well, people tell stories about what they know. Yeah, the different cultures are why there's so many versions of the stories. People just want lessons to be more personal to their experiences. Yeah, and in addition to the various German versions, there's also one in Welsh and another from Finland. They have similar openings, but the endings on them are a little different. So how are they different from each other? Well, interestingly enough, it seems this might be one of the cases where the Grimm's brothers actually made the story darker than what they first heard. I read a translation of their notes where they talked about how they had heard different variations of the story in different parts of Germany. And their Mm -hmm. notes kind of imply that the interactions with the fish wasn't quite as harsh in some of the other tales. Mm. The story is still showing up in written collections. There's an interesting poetry book based on fairy tales that features a shortened prose version of the story. And in most of these versions, the only thing that really changes is what sort of horrible living conditions the fisherman and his wife live in at the beginning. (laughs) The quality of the little doggerel verse conversations between the man and the fish. Mm -hmm. It could be the fact that this is one of the tales that hasn't been made into a movie has a lot to do with it maintaining more of its original form. Uh, Okay. It might get shortened sometimes, with the wife having fewer requests before wanting to be like God. (laughs) But it always follows the same pattern of demanding wife, asks for too much, and gets put right back where she started. Well, asking for godly powers and being denied makes even more sense after I read about the super Christian background of the guy that the brothers collected this from. I didn't do like a lot of research on if he was happily married, but my guess would be probably not. You could ask for a lot of things. You can be rich. You can have a big house. You can even ask to rule the whole world. But making yourself <laughs> like God is just too much. Yeah. I don't want to rule the world. Everybody. Anyway, that super Christian guy you read about was Philip Otto Runge. He mm-hmm. was a painter in Hamburg. And to answer your statement earlier, he actually was married. And had four kids. Doesn't necessarily mean it was a happy marriage, but uh, 
Well, marriages were not intended to increase the happiness in those times. No, no, no. The main goal of marriage in those times was to increase people. <laughs> There's also a Japanese folktale that is called the Japanese Stonecutter that has very similar themes to the fisherman and his wife. In that one, poor Stonecutter craves to be rich and his wishes are granted by a mountain spirit. In the end, he realizes he was actually happy just being a poor Stonecutter. So let's move on from how it's changed in different versions to Angel reading the story so that everyone can enjoy the discussion that we're going to have afterwards. The Fisherman and His Wife There was once a fisherman and his wife. They lived together in a vinegar jug close by the sea, and the fisherman went there every day and fished, and he fished, and he fished. So he sat there one day at his fishing and always looked into the clear water. And he sat and he sat. Then down went the hook, deep down. And when he pulled it up, there he had a big golden fish. And the fish said to him, Listen, fisher, I beg of you, let me live. I am not a real fish. I am an enchanted prince. How would it help you if you killed me? I wouldn't taste good to you anyway. Put me back in the water and let me swim. No, ah, said the man. You needn't make so many words about it. A fish that can talk? I would surely have let him swim anyway. With that, he put him back into the clear water. And the fish went down and left a long streak of blood after him. And the fisher got up and went home to his wife in the vinegar jug. Husband, said the wife, haven't you caught anything today? Nah, said the man. I caught a golden fish who said he was an enchanted prince, so I let him swim again. But didn't you wish yourself something? asked the wife. Nah, said the man. What could I have wished? Ah, said the wife. Here we live in a vinegar jug that smells so sour and is so dark. You could have wished us a little hut. Go there now and tell him. Tell him we want a little hut. He will do that surely. Ah, said the man. Why should I go there? I said the wife. After all, you caught him. And you let him swim again, didn't you? He will do that surely. Go right there. The man still didn't want to go but he didn't want to go against his wife's wishes either. So he went off to the sea. As he came there, the sea was all green and yellow and not at all so clear anymore. So he went and stood and said, Many, many, Timpy tea, fishy, fishy in the sea. Isabel, my willful wife, does not want my way of life. Now the fish came swimming along and said, No, nah, what does she want then? Ah, said the man, after all, I caught you and let you go. Now my wife says I should really have wished myself something. She doesn't want to live in the vinegar jug anymore. She would dearly like to have a hut. Go there, said the fish. She has that now. So the man went home and his wife wasn't sitting in the vinegar jug anymore, but there stood a little hut and she was sitting in front of it on a bench. She took his hand and said to him, Just come in. See now, isn't that much better? 
So they went in, and in the hut was a little hall and a parlor, also a sleeping room in which stood their bed, and a kitchen and dining room with the best of utensils laid out in the nicest way, pewter and brassware and all that belonged there. In the back of the hut was a little yard with chickens and ducks and a garden with vegetables and fruit. See, said the wife, isn't that neat? Yes, said the man, and so let it be. Now we will live right contentedly. Hmm, we'll think about that, said the wife. With that, they ate something and went to bed. So that went on for about eight or 14 days when the wife said, listen, man, this hut is too small and the yard and the garden are so tiny. The fish might really have given us a bigger house. I want to live in a stone mansion. Go to the fish. He must give us a mansion. Ah, wife, said the man, the hut is good enough. Why should we want to live in a mansion? Go there, said the wife. The fish can easily do that much. Nay, wife, said the man, the fish has already given us the hut. I don't want to go there again. It might displease the fish. Go, said the wife. He can do that right well and will do it gladly. Just you go there. The man's heart became heavy and he didn't want to go. He said to himself, this is not right. But he went there anyway. When he came to the sea, the water was all purple and gray and thick and not green and yellow anymore. But it was still quiet. So he went and stood and said, Manny, Manny, Timpy Tee, Fishy, Fishy in the sea, Isabel, my willful wife, doesn't want my way of life. No? What does she want then? said the fish. Ach, said the man, she wants to live in a big stone mansion. Go there then, said the fish. She is standing in front of the door. So the man left and thought he would go home. But when he reached it, there was a big stone mansion, and his wife was standing on the steps, just ready to go in. She took him by the hand and said, Just come inside. That he did, and in the mansion was a big hall with marble floors, and there were so many, many servants, and they tore open the big doors. The walls were all bright and covered with fine tapestries, and the rooms were full of golden chairs and tables. Crystal chandeliers hung from the ceilings. All the parlors and chambers were covered with carpets, and food and the best of wines stood on the tables so that they were ready to break. In back of the mansion was a big courtyard, with horse and cow stables and carriages of the very best. Also, there was a marvelous big garden with the most beautiful flowers and fine fruit trees and a park at least half a mile long. In it were stags and deer and rabbits and all that one could ever wish for oneself. See, said the wife, isn't that beautiful? Oh, yes, said the man, and so let it be. 
Now we will live in the beautiful mansion and be well satisfied. Hmm. We'll think that over and sleep on it, said the wife. With that, they went to bed. The next morning, the wife woke up first. It was just daybreak, and she saw from her bed the wonderful land lying before her. The man was still sleeping, so she nudged him in his side with her elbow and said, Man, get up and just look out of the window. See? Couldn't one become king over all that land? Go to the fish. We want to be king. Ah, wife, said the man. Why should we want to be king? I don't want to be king. Nah, said the wife. If you don't want to be king, I want to be king. Go to the fish and tell him I want to be king. Ah, wife, said the man. That I don't want to tell the fish. Why not, said the wife. Go straight there. I must be king. So the man went there and was right dismayed. That is not right. It is not right, he thought. He did not want to go, but he went anyway. And as he came to the shore, there it was all blackish gray, and the water foamed up from the bottom, and it smelled all rotten. So he went and stood and said, Many, many, Timpy Tea, fishy, fishy in the sea. Isabel, my willful wife, does not want my way of life. Now, what does she want then? asked the fish. <laughs> said the man. She wants to be king. Go there then. She is all that, said the fish. So the man went. And when he came to the mansion, it had become a big castle. It had a high tower with wonderful trimmings on it, and a sentry stood before the door, and there were so many, many soldiers with drums and trumpets. And as he came into the castle, he found that everything was made of marble and gold with velvet covers and big golden tassels. Then the doors of the hall opened. There was all the court, and his wife sat on a high throne of gold and diamonds. She had a crown of pure gold on her head, and a scepter of gold and jewels in her hand. On both sides of her stood six maidens in a row, each always one head smaller than the other. So he went and stood there, and said, O oh, wife, are you now king? Yes, said the wife, now I am king. So he stood there and looked at her. And when he had looked at her like that for a while, he said, Ach, wife, how nice is it that you are king? Now we have nothing more to wish for. Nay, man, said the wife and looked all restless. There isn't enough to do. To me, the time seems so long. I can't stand that any more. Go there to the fish. King I am now. But I must also become emperor. Ah, wife, said the man. Why should you want to be emperor? 
man, said she, go to the fish. I want to be emperor. Ah, wife, said the man. I don't want to tell that to the fish. He can't make an emperor. That he cannot, he cannot do. What, said the wife? I am king and you are my man. Will you go there right away? If he can make a king, he can make an emperor. I want to be emperor. Go there right now. So he had to go, but he became all scared. And as he went along like that, he thought to himself, this doesn't go right. Emperor is too much to ask for. The fish will get tired in the end. With that, he came to the sea. It was all black and thick and began to ferment so that it made bubbles. And such a wild wind blew over it that the man was horrified. He went and stood and said, Manny, Manny, Timpy, Tea, Fishy, Fishy in the sea. Isabel, my willful wife, doesn't want my way of life. No. So what does she want then? Asked the fish. Ah, fish, said the man. She wants to be emperor. Go there then, said the fish. She is all that. So the man went, and when he came there, the whole castle was made of polished marble with alabaster statues and golden decorations. In front of the door, soldiers were marching, and they blew their trumpets and beat their kettle drums. In the castle, barons and earls and dukes were walking around as servants. They opened the doors for him, which were of pure gold. And when he came inside, there sat his wife on a throne, which was made all of one piece of gold, and was about two miles high, and was set with brilliance and carbuncles. In one hand she held the scepter, and in the other hand she had the imperial globe. On both sides of the throne stood the gentlemen at arms in two rows, one always smaller than the next, from the biggest giant, who was two miles high, to the smallest dwarf, who was only as big as my little finger. And in front of her stood so many princes and kings. So the man went and stood and said, Wife, are you now emperor? Yes. She said, I am emperor. So he stood there and looked at her right well. And after he had looked at her like that for a while, he said, Ah, wife, how nice it is now that you are emperor. Man, she said, why are you standing there like that? I am emperor, but now I want to become Pope, go to the fish. Ah, wife, said the man, what do you ask of me? You can't become Pope. There is only one Pope in Christendom. Surely the fish can't make that. 
man, she said. I want to be Pope. Go right there, even today. I must become Pope. Nay, wife, said the man. That I don't want to tell him. That won't go right. That is too much. The fish can't make you a Pope. Man, what chatter, said the wife. If he can make an emperor, he can make a Pope as well. Get along. I am emperor and you are my man. Go there now. At that, he was frightened and went there. But he felt all faint and shook and quaked, and his knees and calves became flabby. And now such a big wind blew over the land, and the clouds flew so that it grew so dark as though it were evening. The leaves blew from the trees, the water splashed against the shore, and worked and churned as though it was boiling. And far away he saw the ships. They were in trouble and tossed and leaped on the billows. The sky was still a little blue in the middle, but at the sides it was coming up right red as in a heavy storm. So he went there in despair and stood in terror and said, Manny, Manny, Tempe Tea, fishy, fishy in the sea. Isabel, my willful wife, does not want my way of life. So, what does she want then? asked the fish. Ah, said the man. She wants to be the Pope. Go there, then, said the fish. She is that now. So he went, and when he came home, it was like a big church with palaces all around it. There he pushed his way through the crowd. Inside, everything lit up with thousands and thousands of candles. His wife was dressed in pure gold and sat on an even higher throne than before. And now she wore three big golden crowns and all around her there was so much pomp and grandeur. On both sides of her there stood two rows of candles from the tallest as thick as a tower down to the smallest kitchen candle. And all the emperors and kings were down before her on their knees. Wife, said the man, and looked at her right well, are you now Pope? Yes, she said, I am Pope. So he went and stood and looked at her. And it was just as though he looked at the sun. After he had looked at her for a while, he said, Ah, wife, how nice it is now that you are Pope. But she sat there stiff as a tree and did not stir or move herself. Then he said, Well, wife, now that you are Pope, you will have to be satisfied. You can't become anything more. That I will think over, said the wife.
With that, they went to bed, but the wife was not satisfied, and her greediness did not let her sleep. She was always wondering what else she could become. But the man slept right well and soundly. He had done much running that day. But the wife could not sleep and tossed herself from one side to the other all through the night and wondered what else she could become, but could think of nothing higher. With that, the sun began to rise, and as she saw the rosy dawn, she leaned over one end of the bed and looked out of the window. And when she saw the sun coming up, ha! she thought, couldn't I, too, make the sun and moon go up? Man, she said, and poked him in the ribs with her elbow. Wake up and go there to the fish. I want to be like God. The man was still half asleep, but he was so alarmed by this that he fell out of bed. He thought he had not heard aright and rubbed his eyes and said, Uh, wife, what are you saying? Man, said she, if I can't make the sun and moon rise and have to sit here and see that the sun and moon are going up, I can't stand that and I won't have a peaceful moment until I can make them go up myself. Then she looked at him in a horrible way. A shudder ran over him. Go right there, she said. I want to be like God. Oh, wife, said the man, and fell before her on his knees. That the fish can't do. Emperor and Pope he can make. I beg of you, be satisfied and stay Pope. At that she became furious and her hair flew wildly about her head. She lifted up her tunic and she gave him a kick with her foot and screamed, I can't stand it and I can't stand Stand it any longer! Will you go? So he pulled on his trousers and ran away as though he were mad. But outside there was a storm, and it raged so that he could hardly stay on his feet. The houses and the trees blew over, and the mountains quaked. The big rocks broke off and rolled into the sea, and the sky was pitch black and it thundered and lightninged and the sea went up into big black waves so high as church towers and mountains and they all had white crown of foam on their tops so he screamed out and could hardly hear his own voice Manny Manny Tempe tea, fishy, fishy in the sea. Isabel, my willful wife. 
doesn't want my way of life. No. What does she want then? Asked the fish. Ugh, said the man. She wants to make the sun and moon rise. She wants to be like God. Go home then, said the fish. She's back in her vinegar jug again. And there they both are sitting to this day. The end. That was great. Now that everyone in the audience is caught up, what was your favorite part? Okay, so this isn't actually a favorite part of the story, but getting ready for this episode led me down a research rabbit hole, and I learned <laughs> something that I never knew. There actually was a female pope. They called her, they called her Pope Joan. Oh, how scandalous. Yeah, she's not in any of the history books that I've read. There's actually a movie about her, though. Oh, I heard that, but I haven't seen the movie. I hadn't heard anything about this until I was doing my research. But apparently she had disguised herself as a man, which, you know, that's the way things tended to go in ancient times. They'd get anything done. You had to disguise yourself as a man. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of stories about that in history. <laughs> Trends life for the win. <laughs> so why don't you tell us more about her, even though it's not really in the story. It's really interesting. The, the, but the story has the, the, the fisherman's wife becoming a pope, right? So totally. So Pope Joan supposedly reigned under the name of John VIII, somewhere around 855. But that timing has been denied by the Vatican because the gap between Leo or whatever the fourth and Benedict the third isn't long enough for her supposed reign. Officially, Pope Joan VIII was assassinated in 882 by his own clerics for reasons no one is clear on. <laughs> I like that. Reasons no one is clear on. <laughs> but, but actually, that was a different Pope John VIII. That you know of. <laughs> the numbering of Johns is very confusing because there are like 21 official Pope Johns. Um, but there have been like 25 Johns, not counting Joan. Let's say three of the Johns were anti-popes, which I hadn't even known there was such a thing as an anti-pope, which is a whole <laughs> new fun thing. From some of the stories, it sounds like she could easily have been one of the antis. There's one story of her that puts the date around 1100 instead of back in the 800s. And that's kind of the problem with legends. The details keep changing to fit what someone else has heard. Mm, yeah. I think sometimes they just make things up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. But in the version that I found, at least one person had to have known about her secret because she disguised herself as a man, right, to become a priest and mm -hmm. was a very good priest and moved on up through the ranks, you know, as you do, cardinal, all that sort of stuff. She gets elected as pope and she was Pope John the something or other and nobody knew, right, until she was in a procession. And the way the story goes while she was in said procession she went into labor. <laughs> yeah, somebody knew. It is literally impossible to go into labor without somebody knowing something. I, I, unless she disguised herself to get the deed done and nobody knew that's who they were with. Yes, <laughs> they didn't expect the Pope to be the scullery maid. <laughs> but, 
nobody's going to suspect that the woman that they met in the bar last night was the <laughs> Oh, my God. Can you imagine the shock on that poor person's face when they realized that the person they were with was the Pope? But how would they know? Well, she probably looked a lot more like her secret identity once she was writhing on the ground in labor. <laughs> Things didn't go so well for her at that point. They kind of dragged her out and killed her, you know, stoned her to death. <laughs> and then she was just erased from existence in the history book. So earlier you said that she hadn't been there long enough. But, I mean, technically from this story, she only had to be Pope for nine months. In some of the versions, it usually has her being Pope for around 18 months. So she would have gotten pregnant while she was Pope. <laughs> so the official story is she died in labor. <laughs> well, she might have still been in labor, but they killed her. <laughs> yeah, as you do. Yes, you do. Um, of course, the official word is that all of this is just legend. Well, on so. that note, I do need to drag us back on topic to the versions or we could talk about Pope Joan all day. So, Angel, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> So, there's one version that the Grimm brothers made note of that was called The History of Little Husband Domini. In that one, Domini doesn't actually catch the fish, and you don't have that blood trail in the water. Instead, he is sitting in his boat and complaining about his life when this enchanted fish sticks its head out of the water and has a conversation with him. So, he's screaming into the void? Yeah, you know, just sitting there with his fishing rod and moaning and groaning about his life. He lives in a hovel with an unsatisfied wife or, or a vinegar jug in some versions. Literally, they're sleeping in an old barrel. This is his fishing trip. It's the only time he gets to complain and think that anybody might hear him, even if it's just the wind. There are definitely times in this story where I would also want to scream into the void like that. <laughs> yeah, and I think we can all relate to that. You know, given the wife in this story, I'd be right there beside him. <laughs> I I know how he feels. I come from a homeschool background. There were seven of us kids. So it was it was only a four-bedroom house. There was not a lot of space for anybody to be himself. So, you know, imagine this guy in a one-room house. He just wants to get out of there and be able to speak his mind. Yeah, I can see that because he's just sitting there in his boat saying what's on his mind and complaining. And all of a sudden, this fish just sticks his head out of the water and starts having a conversation with him. You know, what faileth thee, little man, Dominie? Tis hard in a pigsty to pass my life. Then wish thee a wish, little man, Dominie. Nay, first I must home to ask my wife. I mean, man, if I'd been Dominie, I'd have been the heck out of there the minute that fish started talking. Yeah, that sounds like a story I read as a kid that was about some golden fish. It had similar lessons about just accepting your current life. I can kind of see both as a morality story or also as a way to control a populace who were unhappy with the upper crust. You know, kind of like politics today. One of the things that gets me is the fish is an enchanted prince who's been turned into a fish and cast into the sea. The fish does not ask the fisherman to help him become a prince again. Like... The fish himself is content with having been turned into a fish. It's all about contentment. Yeah. I'd prefer to be a fish, I think. I've heard people talk about the fact that in certain versions of the story, it almost seems like the fish might actually be a genie in an alternate form. That was the direction taken in a story that I read on Archive of Our Own. The fish was a genie. Huh. That reminds me of Arabian Nights. 
is very much like that. And the fish is not an enchanted prince. It's a genie. And genies are malevolent in nature. They have to honor your wish, but they are going to make sure you don't like it. <laughs> well, the genie is angry because they're held captive. And this story is more saying they would do better if they could just be happy to be poor. The fish isn't malevolent like the genies. Yeah, and I can see there was a point in the story pretty early on where I was like, okay, stop right there. That's exactly where I want for my life right now. Just stop, stop. Don't ask for anything else. Yeah, I don't want to be a king. I don't want that responsibility. Just give me a little bit of land. Stone cottage with a garden. Oh, yeah. And all those little animals in the backyard and the ducks. I want that. I want that for my cottage and to just be a hag in the forest. There we go. Back to the hag. Yeah. I want to be a hag and a fish. These are my goals in life. So you just want to be a changeling. Well, you know, ever since I heard about shapeshifters, I wanted that to be me. I'm just sitting here singing, swinging on a star in my head. <laughs> Would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar. And be better off than you are. Or would you rather be a fish? <laughs> All right. It's a musical episode. We already have a musical episode on number two. I, I want to go watch Hudson Hawk now. <laughs> All right. Okay. I got to drag us back on topic again. So was there anything else about how it's changed in the different versions? Well, it hasn't actually done a lot of changing other than those few changes in the rhyme between the man and the fish or the description of the hovel that they start in. It's a hovel or a hut or a pigsty. In my book, it's a vinegar jug. Yeah, and changing where they live is one of the things that impacts the doggerel rhyme. With the end, the fish is saying, Wilt thou be a lard on high, then back with thee to thy pigsty. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, that kind of brings us into the morality part. So what do you think the original lessons of the story were? Well, you know, at first glance, it just appears to be a story with lessons about being greedy. That stands to reason, but the husband doesn't seem all that greedy to me. No, but giving in to the whims of greedy people is bad for the environment. So don't be so mean to your husband? Or how about telling the dude to set some boundaries already? <laughs> the original tale may have wanted to push home that exact idea that men should draw boundaries for their wives. He didn't, and look how it ended. Maybe it was a cautionary tale against lazy husbands who tolerate shrewish wives. <laughs> yeah, and... <laughs> The more they ask for, the more it hurt the environment. I found that really interesting. There is a huge parallel to draw from asking too much of nature to support a lavish lifestyle. And now we can kind of move into the modern lessons. Yeah, because, you know, it always starts small. The change to the environment in the story is so subtle at first. It's not this big, catastrophic event. There's this trail of blood that happens in the clear water. Because when he's first fishing, it's nice and clear and sunny. And then this little trail of blood from the injured fish happens. Mm. And that's before he ever even asks for anything. Yeah, oh, yeah, because the very first time he comes back to make his first demand, the water is already starting to turn kind of yellow and green. It's no mm. longer nice and clear and sparkling blue. And then mm. each time he comes back and asks for more it moves from just the water, then the sky gets darker, and then it starts storming. And you can kind of connect that to what we've done to the planet by harming the water. Yeah, and the water affects everything. And it also is what capitalism is doing right now with the constant expansion and not worrying about resources. Like, you don't always have to increase. You can stay the same or even use less. 
Well, before the 1800s, this had already happened in Europe. The demand on the environment, everybody wanted a castle. Castles take an enormous amount of wood and wood has to be transported. And, and then everybody's got kingdoms, so they have to build ships. And so the toll on the environment in Europe by the 1800s had been devastating. There weren't any trees left. They had to go somewhere else just to find trees. They were shipping trees back from the New World because Europe had no trees left. The Black Forest had been decimated. England had no trees. So this, this had already happened. These people who are hearing this tale, they've already seen this happen. The seas are polluted. The land is stripped bare. Yeah, so it's not just a modern lesson. It was present at that time. Yeah, and then the colonizers moved to the Americas and didn't even learn from it. They're still doing the same thing here. Yeah, and then they did the same thing again in Africa. You know, the first thing they did when they came to the New World was to cut down all the trees, and it affected the environment to such a degree that a mini ice age hit Europe just from cutting down trees in America. Oh, you know, I just read about that, and I actually read that the Ice Age was from the death of 15 to 50, you know, on on average, 15 to 50 million people, and the forest growing back after disease and the colonizers killed all of them. So they had actually caused global warming first. But, you know, there's also the stories about the dust storms, like the Dust Bowl and all that stuff. You know, they've found evidence now that they believe that deforestation is actually what led to the end of the Mayan civilization. Interesting. Okay, so what the colonizers, the first thing they did when they hit the New World was to kill all the people. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I read. A different kind of devastation. But then all the trees grew back because they killed all the people. So many conflicting emotions here. <laughs> but it makes story is relevant now as it was then. The Middle Ages decimated the forests in Europe. Colonialism in America did the same. And we've learned nothing. Yeah. And speaking of not learning anything, the wife never once seemed to think of the people that she became the ruler of or how she could help. It was always just about her own power. Yeah. Everyone always focuses on this horrible wife, right? And her yeah. constant demands. <laughs> but what about the husband's part in all of this? If he had ever set any of those boundaries with his wife or actually spoken up and said what he wanted at any point in their relationship, how different things might have been. I mean, just once told his wife no. <laughs> she might have left him. That would probably be a net positive for him. He could have just not gone back to the fish. Well, yeah. If he had got to that point where he liked the house, right? He could have come back and just said, yep, sorry, fish said no. But that would be lying. Uh, you know, I was about to say in a Christian story, that would be awful because then he would be a liar, which is worse than destroying the environment to her. Uh, which they do in this story. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she made a habit of thinking about anybody but herself in any situation. Probably true. And so what it seems like from this is she's just extremely selfish. It was always just more and more and more instead of like, what good can I do for the kingdom now that I'm the king? Yeah. One of the things that I found really interesting with the way she was so demanding and everything is she would, like you said, she would become this ruler of people, but she never once paid any attention to the people. Yeah. I think that could almost be pulled as a modern lesson in and of itself. You know, that's one of the things that we still complain about today with our modern politicians these people get into office and it's all about their agenda and their power. And so few of the people who have power, even today, want to do anything that actually helps the lives of everyday common people in the world. Yeah. 
Well, I blame the politician Fish because he never asked the people what they wanted. You no, know, nobody ever asked the fish what he wanted. Yeah, not once. Nobody ever asked the fish what he wanted. He didn't ask to be turned back into a prince. He didn't say, well, what are you going to give me? There was absolutely no quid pro quo in this story. Yeah, just a lesson to be learned from a fish who is happy with his circumstances. Or would you rather be a fish? A fish <laughs> is an animal who swims in a brook. He can't write his name or read a book. To fool the fisherman's his only thought. And though he's slick and slippery, he still gets caught. Yeah, because he puts his head out of the water and talks to him. <laughs> slick and slippery politicians need to get caught. That's the moral of the story. That is so accurate. If they get caught by the smart fisherman, which is the common person, maybe they can force them to give them what's good for them and then not ask for too much that'll make us just get sent back. Yeah. Fishy, 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 fishy. <laughs> the fact is the common person, if they get the opportunity, will once again ask for too much. Nobody's willing Always. to just stop. Well, we are, but we're weird. Hag. Oh my goodness, we we just had a two billion dollar lottery, and do you suppose that guy's gonna do any good with his? He only well, he only got four hundred. I was gonna say million, he but... only got four hundred after taxes. Quote unquote, only got four hundred million. <laughs> At least one billionaire got taxed. That yes. yes, only billionaire who actually gets taxed. And before we wander off on another fun tangent, I am calling this episode complete. Give us a like and a share, and don't forget to check us out on Patreon. Thanks for joining us today. Check us out on Patreon. You can help us meet our small goal of breaking even and covering our expenses. Your support helps pay for all of the things that podcasting requires and helps keep this show alive and growing. If you can't afford to support us financially, go give us a good review, subscribe or follow, and share with your friends and family. Feel free to fact check us and offer suggestions to make our show better for you. You can also send us an email at lostinrevisionpodcast at gmail.com. There's a lot more waiting for us all at the end of the road.